Again, my name is Kevin Pitts. If I haven't met you or gotten to know you yet, you're probably wondering who is this guy. Uh, well, I am a husband. My wife, beautiful wife is walking down the aisle right there. Say hi, Miss Amy. Yes, she, she deserves all the applause in this family. Um, I'm a father. My son Mason was playing bass today. He is, you, know, you don't have to clap for each one. It'll get, it's just going to get awkward if you do that. Mason's doing a year of uh, intensive Bible down at E. Cola Bible College, and uh, so proud of him. He's got this blend of compassion and confidence that just doesn't make sense. He's confident in himself and who the Lord's made him, but he's also just loves people. And my beautiful daughter, Madeline, is a senior in high school. I told you, don't clap for everyone, Ian. You're so disobedient. <laughs> Madeline is a senior in high school at North Thurston. She is, a, the, her blend is humor and intelligence. She's also like book smart and creative. She's got, the, the, she's got these combos of things that don't usually go together in people. I am immensely proud of the woman that she is. She even got to uh, be a part of seeing one of her high school friends come to know Jesus Christ for the first time this year. Really proud of my kids. Really proud. So I am husband. I am father. Um, I'm a decent ping pong player. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good on two wheels. I can ride street bikes and dirt bikes probably faster than you. Um, I'm just saying. There's a few things that I know about myself. That's, that's me. Uh, to some people, I'm pastors. Uh, I'm, I'm son to two great parents. Uh, some people probably even think I'm a jerkwad. I'm, I'm just a lot of different things to a lot of different people. We all are. Today in our text, uh, in the book of Mark, we're going to answer a far more important question than who am I. In fact, this text is going to challenge us to answer this question, who do you say Jesus is? And we are going to find out that that is literally the most important question of our existence. There is not even a close second. <laughs> who do you say Jesus is? Uh, it, it's an amazing story. We actually had uh, several more verses tacked on. We were diving into this. We were studying it out. We were writing stuff. And I'm like, guys, we got to quit and, and, and do the rest next week because there's so much rich text here. So it's actually even a shorter passage than we had planned, but that's because it's so amazing. So if you turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, I'll also make sure that the text is on the screen behind me as usual with the amazing Pastor Mark, who, by the way, wishes you hello and adieu and all of those things. And he loves you and misses you, but uh, he's spoiling my lacy people with that silky, sexy voice of his. Hmm. All right, so, uh, and they came to Bethsaida, it begins, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Uh, the setting has shifted back to Jewish territory. Bethsaida is the town that's named here. Uh, Jesus' ministry among the Gentiles, uh, Pastor Mark's been talking to you about the last couple of weeks. It was Obviously a great encouragement to us because most of us are not Jewish, so that would make us Gentile. Uh, to know that the superabundance of God's grace and goodness um, flows out of the Jews and also into us gives us all sorts of hope and all sorts of encouragement because we know that God uh, is, the, first of all, the uh, Jesus Christ, I should say, is first of all the Messiah to the Jews, but then he's also the Savior of the world. Amen? 
So we received, yeah, you guys gotta, you gotta have to give me feedback today, all right? I'm like, let's pretend, let's pretend we're in the South. Thank you. All right. So uh, Bethsaida is the setting. Bethsaida was on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. I think Mark showed you a map last week. It's back on the north side of the Sea of Galilee in Jewish territory. Bethsaida means house of the fisher. I really like names, meanings. I was asking Aurora earlier if she knew what her name meant. But uh, Bethsaida means house of the fisher because it was a very big fishing town. Self-explanatory. There, it was right where uh, the river mouth kind of comes into the lake, so it's the perfect spot for a port. And there on the north side, Jesus comes. Today's story is what I like to call a hinge point. Um, it is it's smack dab in the middle of Mark, but it's also uh, going to be changing our focus. It's going to be hinging us towards something new. It's also a visual parable. The, the first story that we're going to read is a visual parable, and then we're going to see kind of some of the teaching and some of the understanding of that parable afterwards. Because the, the, the healing that's going to take place is going to be kind of a picture of what's going on with the disciples in Jesus' loving, teaching hands. So, um, up until now in the book, the question that John Mark, our author, has been trying to answer is, who is he? Who is this Jesus? And we're going to swing the hinge to kind of a double question that the, that the last half of the book is going to focus on. And that is not who is he, but what kind of Messiah is he? And what does it mean to follow him? So we're going to look at kind of what kind of Messiah, what kind of Christ Jesus was, and what it means for us to follow him. That's going to be the second half of the book we're going towards. And then also from today onward, Mark's narrative even kind of changes a little bit of his writing style. It's oriented towards the cross, though, and the resurrection, because he's on his way. And we'll see those words for the first of nine times. Remember, immediately, he says immediately all the time. We're going to see on the way, because Jesus is literally on the way to the cross. So, pretty important passage to the book and a very important passage to our faith. <clears throat> Some people brought to him a blind man and they begged him to heal him. So once again, we've, we've seen this before in the book of Mark, we have friends or maybe even possibly family bringing uh, somebody that's needy to Jesus. We've said it before, I'll say it again. When we bring our friends to Jesus in their time of need, we will not be disappointed. When we bring our friends to Jesus in their time of need, we will not be disappointed. I almost cried as I was meeting somebody just before preaching and had to kind of get myself gathered because uh, one of our friends introduced me to a new friend of mine. I just met her, and she's going through a hurting time. And the testimony was just, I brought my friend with me as soon as this horrible stuff started happening in her life. And she's been back every week, and, and the Lord is doing some things despite hurt. And I was like, that's it. That's the stuff. When our friends are hurting, the best thing we can do is bring them to Jesus. We won't be disappointed. So just testify right there. God's doing amazing things up here. And he took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the vid village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Uh, so he takes this blind man by the hand, which is pretty awesome. I still hold hands with my mom. 
I'll tell you that right now. I'll hold hands with my wife. I'll hold hands with my kids if they'll let me. I think holding hands is wonderful. But this is Jesus. This is kind of how he, how he rolls. Um, kind of like when he healed the, the deaf man who had the really bad speech impediment. Um, he takes him out of the village. He kind of takes him into a private setting. These two parables are kind of linked together in, in the author's mind, and they're, they're, we're supposed to remember the, the deaf mute as we're thinking of this blind man, because again, Jesus takes him off by himself. Um, Jesus' compassion is really the thing that's being highlighted, because this, this man doesn't need a spectacle. <laughs> he needs Jesus. Immediately, he needs to be healed, uh, but more than anything, he needs a relationship with Jesus. And we're, we're supposed to observe... Uh, with our astute Bible study eyes, because we all have them, we're supposed to uh, observe a correlation between the physical blindness of this man, the, the physical deafness of the healing right before, and the spiritual blindness and the spiritual deafness of the disciples at this point. This is a, pretty much what this story is about. So think about that in the back of your brain, brain as we, uh, we kind of... S- go through this. So he, he spits on his eyes. Interesting choice. Uh, I did a lot of reading. It, there's a lot of guesses as to why spittle is the thing. Um, the CDC does not advise you doing this right now. Coronavirus is a thing. Okay. Uh, but <laughs> he uses spittle. I think what I really want to point out though is that again, he laid his hands on him. He's taking him by the hand. He's laying his hands on him. Jesus, Jesus is personal. Um, Jesus is compassionate. He's loving. Uh, the laying on of hands is highlighted throughout the Old Testament. It's something that's talked about often. There's several reasons why you might lay hands on somebody. Uh, one of them, though, is to bestow blessing. And Jesus is indeed going to bless this man's life. But I think even more than that, the laying on of hands is part of the ministry of the church. I think we're all called to lay hands on one another. Um, Obviously, always appropriately, always above reproach. Um, We need to be cautious, even with scandals that have have rocked the Catholic Church and other types of things. We need to be cautious to always be above reproach. But I tell you what, hug a brother or sister today. I mean, hug them. Hold them them tight. When When you hear that something bad has happened in their life or that they're struggling with something, pull them in. Put a hand just even on a shoulder or, or on the back. Uh, when you meet a child, take a knee and get down to eye level with them. Put, put your hand on their shoulder, again, appropriately, or on their head. Let that child know that, that you care about them. We express, I think, a lot of times the love of Jesus through our physical touch. And it can be a really wonderful, powerful thing. Um, I think the proudest day of my life was uh, my friend Scott up at the Lacey campus. He, he's not much of a hugger. And it, and it was always kind of awkward because I'm very much a hugger. Um, and he'd be like, yeah, well, whatever. Okay, thank you. And so I got to where I'm like, okay, he wants a handshake. I, I get it. You know, he's, he's a man's man. And, you know, maybe he's threatened by my masculinity. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll try to be polite. But the day that I reached to shake his hand and he reached to hug me, <laughs> I was like, yes! Winner, winner, chicken dinner! I have turned Scott into a chatter. And I, I do think... We need to consider this. So don't be afraid to touch one another in love. Jesus does that with this man. And his question is interesting, though. After he does the spittle and touches him, he says, do you see anything? What do you see? 
do you think Jesus wasn't sure? <laughs> do you think he just didn't know? I mean, he's, om- he's omnipotent, but he didn't know this one. <laughs> he's, he knows everything. No, not this. He, he kind of has to ask this guy. No, as we've said, Jesus is using this as a visual parable. So what is happening is for his disciples' sake, who are right there, and it's for our sake, uh, because this guy even responds. He says, yeah, I, I see people, but they kind of look like trees walking. Um, he couldn't quite see. Now, again, do you think Jesus was, was, was thinking to himself, well, well this is a particularly difficult case. <laughs> you know, I'm going to have to use extra power on this guy because I'm not quite up to the task. No, Jesus has all the power. He's omnipotent. It's not an accident that this man is halfway healed. It's on purpose. He partially heals this man to show the disciples that up until now, they've had a partial view of who he is and what he intends to do. They've partially seen, and now Jesus is going to ramp up the discipleship, all the teaching, and they're going to see fully. That's what this is about. Check it out. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Just as Jesus wanted and and willed of his own volition a second half of the healing for this man, he is now going to initiate of his will a second half of seeing for his disciples. Jesus is turning the corner. This is that hinge point. To show the disciples what kind of Messiah he is. But first, we will see one of the most amazing proclamations a human man has ever made by Peter. This is powerful and this is game changing. It's truly the hinge of our, uh, of our book. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. So our setting changes again, this time to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. They were named for the Roman emperor Caesar and the town's builder Philip. So often you have names like that in this region because Rome was such a superpower and conquered all these areas, built all these cities. So uh, I always say the journey is as important as the destination. And, uh, and Jesus thinks so, too, because on the way, he asks his disciples a question, and it's a pretty big one. Who do people say that I am? And it, like I said before, on the way will be used nine times by John Mark because Jesus is on his way where? The cross. That's right. This is his destination. It's where he's headed. It's his will and God's will, and it's what must happen. He's on his way to the cross. Um, so their answers uh, to his questions we've actually heard previously, if you've been here in this study of Mark. Uh, one, of the, one of the rumors out there is that it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Uh, this started from Herod, who had a very guilty conscience because he was responsible for the death of John the Baptist. And so his guilty conscience said, oh my goodness, there's this powerful guy healing and teaching with authority. It's got to be John the Baptist coming back to haunt me. It, Told guilty conscious, and he should, because he uh, allowed John the Baptist to be murdered in his own jail. Um, Elijah is another one that people have guessed about uh, Jesus. Elijah was one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. 
And he was one of only two men that we see stories of in the Old Testament who escaped death, essentially. They went to heaven and toward eternity without having to physically die. Uh, he was snatched up. So many uh, Jewish people believe that Elijah would return because of that fact. In fact, we wonder if that might be one of the prophets that we see in, Re in the book of Revelation. But that's, uh, that's for a different book study. Uh, the third option they give is maybe you're one of the prophets. That's what other, other people are saying. You're, you're one of the prophets. Uh, whether he was risen from the grave, uh, you know, a, a dead prophet that's come to life, or maybe a, a new prophet that was kind of in the vein of the old prophets, um, that's, that was a common belief of the people. He's a prophet because he preaches with such authority, which is obviously what a prophet did, speaking on behalf of God. Similarly today, if we were to go out on the street and ask people what they think about Jesus, we might get varied responses. There'd probably be some people that said, oh, um, he was a famous Jewish teacher. There would be others who said, ah, well, yeah, he taught nice things, but he's dead now. Just like a lot of people, Confucius or Buddha or whatever, they just kind of lump him into, into these good teachers that, that are now dead. Some might admit that he was known as a healer of his day. Um, some have even tried to say that he never existed. He's, he's completely a, a myth. But even historians outside of Christianity, there's a record of Jesus Christ existing. But there would still probably be people who are like, nah, I, don't, I don't believe there is a Jesus at all. We would get a whole lot of different answers. But the most important question is coming from Jesus. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Who do you say I am? The answer to that question is the difference between life and death. And we know that today. We do know that today. But for just a second, let's put ourselves in Peter's sandals in the sandals of the disciples. They know Jesus, I mean intimately. As, as well as, as I know Mason and Mason knows me, they, they, they could touch him, they could reach out and feel him. They, they ate meals with him. Um, they heard when he had a cough or sneezed. I mean, he, he was a human being that was with them. I think that it took immense faith and some supernatural ability for Peter to say this. Because he's looking at the man. He's with the man. But he realizes this isn't just a man. When he answers on behalf of the disciples, he says, you are the Christ. This is a massively, again, significant point in Mark's gospel. And this is a significant question and realization for us as well. So far, Jesus has had a really frigid welcome by his creation. The God of the universe, the creator, he's there standing amidst them, Emmanuel, God with us. And he has this horrible welcome. There's, there's a few people who've shown some faith, but they've been outsiders for the most part too. There was a, an unclean Jewish woman that showed some faith, a, a Syrophoenician woman who showed some faith, one of the greatest nations that was an enemy of Israel. A Gentile who was deaf and mute showed faith. All these outsiders, but his own people have been rejecting him like crazy. 
especially the teachers, especially the religious leaders. So far, the only declarations of Jesus' true identity as the Son of God have come from either the narrator, God himself, when Jesus was baptized, or demons. That's it. So for, for Peter, a human, now to say, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the Most High God, says in the parallel passage in Matthew. This is massive. Uh, one of the authors I read said this, is the, this was the freeing of the logjam of the disciples' misunderstanding. <laughs> this logjam that's been keeping them back from really understanding what's going on. It finally gets freed and it just rushes out. Because they, they previously did not understand this. Do you remember back in chapter 4 when Jesus stilled the waters on, on the lake? They said, who is this? That even the waves and the winds obey him. Who is this? They didn't know before. And they know now. I also don't want you to miss that this is the conclusion of those who walked most closely with Jesus and knew him better than any other human beings. The eyewitness's conclusion is that Jesus is the Christ. That's big. That's big. Uh, you may have heard the term apologetics, being able to understand and defend your faith. This is one of the biggest things about defending your faith. Eyewitnesses concluded who he was. Eyewitnesses saw the resurrection. Eyewitnesses saw all these healings. This was all known as fact. And if anybody could have dug up dirt and misproven it, they would have done it back then. But this was fact. You are the Christ. Now, the, the Christ is an interesting word. Um, Messiah is a, is a synonym. That's the uh, kind of the Hebrew way to say it. It means to anoint or it means the anointed one. Um, and one was anointed to one of three offices, typically in the Jewish nation, um, prophet, priest, or king. The Christ was prophet, priest, and king. And so this was a pretty special thing that he was the anointed one. Um, and, and the Christ or the Messiah, it was the total hope of the Jew. It, it, was, it was their happy ending. It was their happily ever after story that they heard as a child, that they embraced, that they were hoping for forever. Because the Old Testament promised that Messiah would, um, through Messiah, God would establish this everlasting kingdom over all the earth. And so the Jews, having tons of different enemies, tons of nations that had persecuted them, hurt them, and even currently they were enslaved by the Romans, um, they figured this was the ultimate political deliverance for Israel from all its enemies. And so the Jew would be like, yes, this is our happily ever after. And the disciples are thinking, that means we're going to reign and rule with Jesus. We're going to get special seats. It's going to be amazing. What we now know, though, is that the Messiah was going to be fighting a very different enemy than Israel had supposed. The Messiah was going to be fighting the enemy of sin, the enemy of death. Jesus Christ would indeed establish an everlasting kingdom, but it would be, first of all, a spiritual kingdom before it becomes a physical kingdom here on the earth and in heaven. So let me ask you again. This is the question of your life. Who do you say that Jesus is? 
Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, Jesus accepted Peter's answer. He was indeed the Christ, the Son of God. In fact, uh, in other uh, gospel accounts of the same story, um, Jesus gives him this high praise. He says, Peter, this is not through natural eyes you've seen. This is, this is through supernatural eyes that you've seen this. It was Holy Spirit that allowed you to even know this about me. And he says, you're, 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 you're the rock. I now call you the rock. You're the rock that I'm going to build my church on. Jesus just praises and praises and praises him. Jesus accepted the answer. Jesus knew who he was. So again, who do you say Jesus is? He's the Christ. He says he's the Christ. He accepts that he's the Christ. So I think that forces an answer from us as well. If Jesus believed that that he was the son of God, there's no way we could say he was just a good teacher or, or just a healer or just a really nice guy with some good things to share with people. Is anybody walking around saying, I'm the son of God, I'm the Messiah, who isn't, is evil. They're not a good teacher. They're not a nice person. They're crazy or evil or they're the Lord. Liar, lunatic Lord. You may have heard that phrase before. C.S. Lewis, I think, coined it. Who do you say Jesus is? He knows who he is. His disciples know who he is. Do you know who he is? And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. There's an important reason uh, Jesus tells the disciples not to spread this fact around. And that's because there's already been one situation where people who thought he might be the Christ tried to forcibly uh, get him to take a throne and start a war. And Jesus had to kind of escape out of that situation. That's not the kind of Messiah he's going to be. Bad things can happen if people learn he's the Messiah without learning what Jesus is now going to teach his disciples. This new training on what kind of Messiah he is, what the Messiah was always intended to do and to be. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. He began to teach them his right. He had a massive task. (laughs) Because again, the common expectation among Jews of what Messiah would be was way off. Way off. Imagine if someone had to somehow retrain you on who Santa Claus really is. I don't know if you knew this, but he doesn't wear red. He wears blue. Mind blown. Yeah. He's not fat. He's skinny. He doesn't have a beard. He has a Hayden mustache. The difference between Hayden and Santa is Hayden makes it look good. (laughs) He doesn't come down the chimney with presents that his elves made. He actually goes from Walmart in his Datsun and drops it off at your house. You, you guys have to, we have to relearn everything you ever knew about Santa was off for the last however many years you've lived. And you'd be like, I, I just can't wrap my brain around it. I've got this picture of who he is. Now, that's a mythical being who we've seen drawings and stories of. This is God, and this is the God man, and it's, it's real. And the creator of the universe is misunderstood and what Jesus is supposed to do and the Christ is supposed to do is completely misunderstood. The disciples need to totally deconstruct and reconstruct their entire notion of what the Christ would do. 
The Son of Man, the Son of Man must. Let's start with that. He must. This is the plan. This is God's plan. It's, it's what's going to happen. In order to accomplish all that God wants to do, to right every wrong on the planet, he must. Period. End of story. End of discussion. Must. He must do what? He must, first of all, suffer many things. A suffering Messiah? We, we were expecting a triumphant Messiah. Don't worry, little disciples. He will be quite triumphant. First, he must suffer. He must, what else? He must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Wait, a rejected Messiah? This doesn't make any sense at all. Every Jew in the world is longing for the Messiah, longing for the Christ. Why? Why would the leaders of Israel reject our only hope? Don't worry, sweet disciples. He will bring hope to Israel, but Israel right now is in desperate need of a leadership change. He must, what else? He must be killed. And after three days rise again, a dying Messiah? He, he's supposed to usher in peace and prosperity. How can he do that from the grave? Don't worry, sweet disciples. He will rise again in three days. And he will bring a peace with God because sin is dealt with forever. The idea of a suffering servant was a scandalous contrast to all of Jewish thought. It literally never in Israel was it taught that the Christ should suffer. Now, to be fair, the book of Isaiah does a great job of highlighting and portraying this suffering servant kind of uh, a person. It's pretty explicit. Um, However, the Jews had not connected the dots between uh, what Isaiah calls the servant of the Lord and this other person called the Messiah. Oh, wait, they're, they're the same? They're the same person? Nobody connected the dots. They just didn't get it. And sometimes we just don't get it. I don't know if that sounds familiar from last week. Uh, It says, he said this plainly, which is an interesting thing. He said this plainly. Uh, He wasn't speaking parables, first of all. He didn't mince words or soft sell what must happen. He said it plainly. In fact, he he spoke spoke it so boldly and so kind of -of matter-of-factly and so confidently that Peter couldn't handle this truth. You can't handle the truth. He just couldn't. He was beside himself. He completely loses control in a moment of panic and confusion. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. (laughs) But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I'm sorry, Peter. You're taking Jesus aside to rebuke him? <laughs> this is hysterical. Not only is he his rabbi, which you don't, you don't rebuke your rabbi. You just don't. Your teacher, the one that you're following as a disciple, you don't do that. Not okay. But you just admitted and know who he is. You're the Christ. You're the son of God. I need to rebuke you. That, that's, <laughs> it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. But remember, Peter's entire reality is turned upside down. He just can't wrap his head around the truth bomb that Jesus just dropped on him. 
immediately after Jesus accepted the title of Messiah, he seems to be redefining what Messiah is practically beyond recognition. So Peter thinks, I've got I've to correct Jesus quickly and firmly because we're going off the rails. <laughs> Jesus knows that Peter's thinking is way too small, though. He's focused on the wrong things. Jesus must do these things. He must suffer. He must then rise victoriously. He must. So now Peter must be rebuked. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Satan? I mean... <laughs> holy guacamole, Batman. (laughs) This was the rock. You're the rock. I'm going to build my church on you. (sighs) Satan. I mean, that's a turnaround right there. This is a big deal. Um, But it was necessary. It was very necessary because Peter's rebuke of Jesus is at cross purposes with God's will of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And at this point, Peter would have Jesus skip the cross and go straight to the throne, which sounds really familiar. This is exactly the type of shortcut that Satan tempted Jesus with in the wilderness. In Matthew 4, Satan takes Jesus up to a very high mountain, showing him all the kingdoms of the world. He says, bow before me and I'll give you all these. What was Jesus' reply? These exact same. Get behind me, Satan. The cross is before me. That's what must happen first. And I'm not going to skip the cross. At this point, Peter was no longer acting like the rock or a disciple of Jesus, but he was acting as a a disciple of, of the adversary of Satan himself. He wasn't setting his mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The reality is we do not get to set Jesus straight when he says something that we don't like. We do not get to make God into what we want him to be to fit our preconceived notions. We don't get to say, I'm going to take a little bit from here, a little bit from that teaching, a little bit from that guy, a little bit from Jesus, and I'm going to just kind of make this nice little way that I'm going to live. That's not salvation. That's satanic. And Satan loves to bring a little bit of truth and blend it with a whole bunch of error and fool people. He's the liar. He's the deceiver. What Jesus says is true. Period. Nothing else. We also don't get to take the teachings that we're fond of, keeping those, and discard the things that he teaches that we're not really that comfortable with. We do not want to become agents of Satan. God's word says it. It's the truth. It's the word of God, and we're going to follow it. All right, we're going to leave a cliffhanger here. First of all, let me tell you, Peter is still the rock that Jesus built the church on. Is that encouraging? (laughs) That's encouraging to me because there's times in my Christian life when I'm not acting like a disciple of Jesus anymore at all, but I've acted like an agent of Satan or something else. I've, I've screwed up. I've fallen on my face. Jesus doesn't say, I'm done with you, Kevin. Get out of here. Just like he doesn't say, I'm done with you, Peter. Get out of here. His grace is sufficient. Every morning I wake up and say, God, I want to follow you today. Forgive me for the things that I've done wrong. His grace is always there. So be encouraged if you're in one of those slumps where you're like, man, I just don't feel like I'm that close to God right now. I feel like I've kind of been letting him down more than anything. You're still his child. He still cares for you. 
and he wants to bring you out of that filth back into that place of love with him and closeness with him. So be encouraged by that. Um, but the next teaching that Jesus is going to dive into is so important that we didn't want to have it be preached any less than it needed to be. So the cliffhanger is Jesus is going to now defi- redefine what discipleship looks like. He, he redefined what the Messiah does. Oh, wait. So a disciple is a follower of Jesus, right? One that imitates Jesus. So there's your hint for next week. If we know that the, that the Messiah must suffer to serve all mankind, I wonder what a disciple's life is going to look like. There's your hint. <sighs> C.S. Lewis, I referred to him earlier the liar, lunatic, Lord thing. I want to just read you uh, an excerpt. Um, He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher and don't accept his claim to be God. There are people just like that. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to.